This is the Emmanuel Message Podcast. For more information on Emmanuel, check us out online at kenosha.church. We are in week three of the Holy Spirit series. Today, Pastor Andy McGowan asks the question, does God have to show up in your life? Would your life, your family, and your prayers be any different if the Holy Spirit withdrew? What does it mean to be a church that is driven by the Spirit? Today, Pastor Andy provides practical steps in becoming spirit-driven by the examples of the Ephesian church. Enjoy the message. Hey, I just want to welcome you all here. My name is Andy. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel. One of uh, just many of just co-workers wanting to see the gospel go forward in the city. I also want to say hello to the church that is at home. Some of you have been at home during this whole pandemic. Some of you have been joining us for the first time. So church in person, let's give a big shout out to church at home right now. We miss you and we're saving you a seat when you are ready to come back. And so it's just so cool hearing many of the stories. Many of you are sitting here today. You watch us for the first time uh, during these just so bizarre months. Uh, we are in the Holy Spirit series. We're in the week uh, three, uh, or wait, what week is this? Yes, week three. Now Tom has me all jumbled here. What week are we on? Week three, we are gonna talk about the Spirit driven church. We've talked about how to be filled with the Spirit. Tom last week talked about how the opposite of that, how to be how to quench the spirit. But now as a church, how do we collectively, how do we ensure that we are a spirit-driven church? And so we are going to see the example of the Church of Ephesians today. We're going to be in a number of passages today. And then I hope that we can get practical and then we can put into practice what we're going to talk about today. Cool? All right. So, oh, by the way, in the weeks to come, some of you are like, where are we going with the, with the, the series? In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and then also hearing the voice of God. Those are a couple of the subjects that we'll be dealing with in the weeks to come. Um, you know, in fact, and I, I want you to put this down, at the end of this month, my uh, friend, a friend of Emmanuel, Ben Segabart, will be coming to speak. Uh, and he is somebody who uh, has... Uh, not heard from, you know, when people say, oh, yeah, I just hear from God, I hear from God, and you're like, man, that's not me. Well, that's Ben, but he has had dynamic times where God has shown up in ways, and what's so cool with his story is that every single one of us can hear from God, and so I'm excited for him to come here in a few weeks' time. Now, Ben and I, we go way back. Uh, I've shared about him in a, a couple messages ago uh, about our time in college. Uh, he was my college roommate. We transferred from Bible College in Iowa uh, to go to Trinity in Deerfield with the immediate thought of giving, getting involved uh, with inner city ministry. Now, again, we transferred to Trinity uh, in Deerfield thinking that they would have an inner city ministry already in school. We should have checked that one out. They didn't. And so one thing that we thought of in that time was, well, listen, we serve a big God. Uh, God can do anything. So why don't we just start an inner city ministry to Chicago? So we did. And within one year, it was one of the biggest ministries on campus, going four out of the five school days a week uh, to East Garfield Park. Uh, we, we had this attitude, God can do anything. Uh, you know, and you know, that's, that's how we viewed uh, our life. That's how we viewed, that was the lens of how we saw the world. It was, some people call it rose-colored, right? Oh, you just have rose-colored glasses. Some people call it, you know, having an optimist attitude or, you know, your glasses half full. And, and you know what? Those phrases may be true. Sometimes we may look at this world too Pollyanna. But what I want to tell you is that there's something damaging about those phrases as well. Too, as well. Is that, you know, oftentimes when you meet Jesus for the first time, you're in what's called this honeymoon period. This period where, where you're just super in love with Jesus and super hungry for anything that Jesus has to offer. But there's somewhere along the line that begins to cool. 
and we get okay with that. And here's the deal. I want us to recapture God can do anything. I want, us to re- I want us to recapture that moment. I want us to recapture that idea that God, you can do anything. And you know, one of the God, you can do anything thoughts that Ben and I had was one of their summers uh, while we were in college. We were in Iowa. We had been praying for the whole year and we just felt like God wanted to bring out about a revival of old in Iowa. And so we thought, okay, how does a revival happen, all right? Well, here's the deal. Revivals happen on God's timing when God's people are hungry and ready for it, all right? But what we thought was, let's just put an event on, all right? We're gonna have a revival. So we set a date in the calendar. We're gonna have a revival and uh, we're gonna have it at mm, Ben's house, all right? And so we were just so naive with a lot of things, but guess what? We had the idea, the key idea that God can and will do anything. So it's gonna be at Ben's house, but here's the problem with it being at Ben's house. It was an active farm, farm equipment everywhere, farm animals everywhere. If the wind is out of the wrong direction, you smell the farm animals. And his house was 10 miles outside our small Iowa town, down a gravel road that dead ended, all right? So nobody knows where this thing's gonna be at, but yet somehow we thought this was gonna be a good idea to have a revival at his house. And so we began to print signs off Microsoft 95 template art, okay? Some of you might remember that. We bought uh, ad space in the newspaper. We bought billboards, and we were going to make a go for it. Now, here's the deal. If you're going to have a revival, it better have an awesome name, right? You want to make sure that you have this name that when people see it, they're like, wow, that's really relevant. Oh, wow, that's super cool, right? Oh, wow, those people that are putting it on, they are so clever. I just want to be around them. I hope they stand at the end of the event so I can get their autograph, right? I mean, you know, that's the type of branding that that we so rely on in today's world, right? We just want to be clever. And so you probably wonder what we name this revival. The name of the revival was Rally at Ben Sagabart's house. Now, looking back at that, that is really marketing dumb, all right? I mean, I've seen fifth grade birthday party invitations probably be more captivating than rally. R- r- seriously, rally? I think you think of like political rallies. Rally at Ben Segabar. It's like people had to know where his house was. I already told you it was 10 miles in the middle of nowhere at a dead end road on a gravel road, right? What were we thinking? We weren't. We were naive, but we believe that God can and will do anything, So as an event planner would cringe and the branding was all wrong and the location was impossible to find, our worship band was going to be a number of high schoolers and the speakers were going to be rural renowned speakers. They're going to be Ben and I. We're going to stand on a stage that was a rusty old farm trailer with hay on it. From a cool perspective, this event had lame written all over it, but it didn't matter to us. When the day of the event hit, it rained. Come on. It's already, we already have the deck stacked against us and we didn't even know it. It started to rain. And if it's going to rain on an Iowa farm, you know what happens, right? It gets muddy. But I want to tell you something else about rain. You know who's afraid of rain? (laughs) I'm going to have a little fun with this. Christians are afraid of rain. All right? Sunday morning rolls around. You look out the window. Oh no. What? It's raining. What do we do? We can't go to church. It's raining, right? We are frightened of rain. We're frightened of inconveniences, aren't we, right? And so it's raining on a Christian rally for Christian revival. And I thought like the Wicked Witch of the West and and, and Wizard of Oz, it was going to melt the whole thing, right? So we got on our knees 
in that field and we started praying against that rain and literally holes began to punch out of the sky. I'm kidding you not. And the rain stopped. And we're like, all right, game on. So we go to the end of his driveway, Ben's driveway, and we stand on the day of and we wait for the cars to come. There was nothing. Finally, one car came. It was one of our volunteers that came late. And we're like, hey, how you doing? But it didn't deter us because we believed that God was going to answer our prayers because God can do anything. Finally, after five minutes, nothing. Ten minutes, car came. Yes, we got one. Twenty minutes, there came a car. Then came a second car. Then came five cars, and then came ten cars, and then literally, we, it got to a point where it went from nothing to something to where we couldn't see the end of it. And we thought, game on. And we worshipped, we gave the gospel, and people gave their life to Christ, and at the end of the day, we thought, wow, that was awesome. When I look back at it now as a pastor, I'm like, that's incredible. How did something where people were so far from God traveled 10 miles in the middle of nowhere after a rainstorm and gave their life to Christ in a muddy field. It's because when God's people decide to pray, we realize and we activate that God could actually do anything in and through you. Church, we need to know this this morning. And if we're gonna be a spirit-led, spirit-filled church, we can't forget that God can and will do anything. And so the question I have today, it's the main point, and then we're gonna unpack a bunch of things and get super practical, is does God have to show up in your life. Think about it. Think about this. Do a little assessment of the heart. Does God have to show up? Does he have to show up in your everyday life? Does he have to show up in your prayers? Does he have to show up at work? Does he have to show up in the way that you fight temptations? Does he have to show up in the things that you know what could be? Does he have to show up in the church this morning? Could we go through, theoretically, our order of service on a Sunday morning and God doesn't even have to be here? Now we know he's here, but what I'm talking about is that we can do it all in our own strength and we don't have to give a thought to the things of God. I pray that we rebuke that thought in this moment right now. Does God have to show up? You know, in the American Western church, and God's doing a big sifting right now, all right? So I'm gonna mix some things in here where I think things are going. He's doing a big sifting, and it's my prayer, one year from now, every single one of you will still be in the faith walking in the faith. I believe that once you place your faith and trust in Jesus, he's always got you. But it's my prayer that nobody drifts. You're going into a time of testing. Do I have your attention now? You see, the church has been used by many, including myself, exclusively for self-help. Yes, you should get help at church. Yes, things should be practical in church. But the church does not exist to be another 12-step self-help book. Some people come here just to have a Nice spiritual experience, one where it just made them feel good. And listen, I hope you have those moments. I hope we do. We, we get, he's kind. Our Lord is merciful. Of course we should have these. But this isn't just for you to have a little experience. Some people come in here for just the social settings. Some people come in here to just want to be filled up with knowledge. All these things aren't necessarily bad things, but they can all be done without the Spirit of God. Every single one of them. And I realize in a room, 
this size, and I realize each and every week we have people on different parts of the journey with God. Some of you are trying to figure out Jesus. Some of you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Some of you are brand new in the faith. Some of you have been in the faith for many years, and some of you are, are, are growing, and some of you are drifting. You know what? If we're going to survive and thrive in the weeks, months, years ahead, and I'm not doom and gloom. I am full of optimism. I am totally. But if we're going to thrive, it's not going to be easy just to where you can just watch Christianity go by and say, I like being part of this. You have to be active in it. So therefore, I declare war. I declare war on God not being able to show up. I declare war on us relying on our own strength. I declare war and say no more to where we push out the Spirit of God. So the question is, does God have to show up? And being a Spirit-driven church, there are a number of churches that we can look at as an example in Scripture. And I want to look at the church of Ephesus today. What's really interesting about the church of Ephesus is we get to see their formation, we get to see their, how they flourished, but we also get to see their fall. The church of Ephesus, in its glory, was a spirit-driven church that would make your jaw drop if you're a part of it. And that's what we're going to look at today, this trajectory. And as we look at this trajectory, we're going to look at practical steps, how we can be a spirit-driven and continue to be a spirit-driven church. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 first. And again, there's going to be a number of passages. I do encourage you to follow along in the Bible uh, today. Uh, but I do realize there are a number of, of passages today and not in anchor text. So I understand uh, if you're going to be drawn to the screen a lot. But one thing I do want you to do today is take notes. You all have phones. You all have that notes thing. You do need to take notes or else you're not going to remember. All right. You might as well. Um, just go get a donut and hang out in the lobby, all right? You need to take notes, all right? Because you're not gonna remember any of this today if you don't, all right? Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Someone's like, man, you've been on a lot of coffee today. I actually spilled my coffee, so I don't know what I'm on today, all right? So Ephesians 5, 15. Pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian church, encouraging them. Basically, this is what this, saying, this, is, what this is saying, is you will not be a spirit-driven person or a spirit-driven church if you're not paying attention and obeying the right things. You need to be alert because we are living in a life that is not just the battle of flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. We are living in a spiritual battle where the enemy wants to either not know Christ on a personal level, or if you do know Christ, he wants you to drift so that you're ineffective for the things of Christ. I don't know about anybody, but has anybody looked and just assessed what 2020 is all about? I mean... <laughs> You know, this is, by the way, this is not a subject on, on our presidents in the hospital or, or what could happen to the, this, is, this, this was picked out last spring that we're going to talk about the spirit-driven church. And you know what? Sometimes my heart's like, can we just go back to April? April was hard. I know, but look how much, look what's all happened, right? All we have to do is look out the window and say, 2020, what more do you have to bring? But if we're going to thrive, which we will, because God does not change, we must lean into him. He is declaring war on our own self-reliance. So back to the Ephesus church. They needed to pay attention and so shall we. 
If we're going to be a spirit-driven church, the first thing we have to realize this is that we need to declare war on status quo. We have to declare war on status quo. So we're going to look at their founding. And in their founding, they declared war on their status quo. So we're going to go through the narrative of the church of Ephesus. Uh, the ch- 20 years after the day of Pentecost, we spoke of the day of Pentecost uh, the last couple weeks. That is when the New Testament church was born. It's when the uh, Holy Spirit came upon the church. Uh, 20 years after the day of Pentecost, Paul founded the church or solidified the church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is a city on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Turkey. And since uh, this, in the 20 years of the New Testament church, tens of thousands of people had placed their faith and trust in Jesus, which, which started in Jerusalem and then scattered because of persecution. Jesus was, was made known throughout the known world. Now, Ephesus, again, in modern-day Turkey, it's on the coastal part of the Mediterranean Sea, was an important city of commerce. It was a, had a booming economy. It had many wealthy homes. It was a thriving entertainment industry. But it was also a city that was fascinated with magic and the occult. Uh, they had a booming idol industry because of that. Uh, the great temple, the goddess of Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was in Ephesus. Artemis worship, including drunkenness and, and sexual fornication. In fact, in order to connect with the god of Artemis, you would go into the temple. Often you would drink alcohol. That's the way that they would get filled with spirits. And then they would have sexual relations with a prostitute in the temple. That's how they thought that they could get connected to Artemis. And they wanted to do this because Artemis uh, brought, uh, brought wealth, they thought. It, it also brought fertility. And so... Ephesus was known around the world, and this is the world in which early believers found themselves in. Sometimes we can think of, oh man, we are just morally corrupt in this day and age. Listen, we have been morally corrupt since the fall. Upon Paul's arrival, he found some of John the Baptist's disciples. Now, John the Baptist, uh, he was the uh, forerunner of Jesus. He spoke of the coming of Jesus. And so he would baptize people uh, in repentance, looking forward to Jesus' coming. And so... Ironically, as you read through the history of the church here, some of John the Baptist's disciples continued to baptize in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. So here, Paul meets some of them, and they didn't get the memo about Jesus. Somehow they didn't get it, right? And so Paul begins to explain that Jesus has come, and what we see in Acts chapter 18 and 19 is what we see is that there's a mini Pentecost and Ephesus. These disciples of John the Baptist place their faith and trust in Jesus, are given the Holy Spirit, are baptized in the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues, and began to prophesy it right there. And they're like, whoa, what is happening? This is 20 years after the original day of Pentecost. And so it started with a bang. And uh, Paul, in response, began to teach in the synagogue, as he would in much in many of the cities. Uh, he taught there for three months and then was eventually kicked out. I'm surprised he lasted that long. And so what he thought was, hmm, I'm kicked out of a religious institution. What should I do? Many of us would probably try to find a home or go in the street corner. No, uh, Paul, as Paul would, he was gutsy. He went to a secular lecture hall and taught for two years. As a result, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It wasn't just because he was there two years teaching about Jesus. It wasn't just that Ephesus heard about Jesus. It's all of modern day Turkey heard about Jesus. It spread. 
That's why God wants us. He's equipping us to share Christ in our life because it will not return void. If we continue to talk about Jesus, if people hear about the gospel of Jesus in our life, when you go to heaven, whether Christ comes back or you die, people will stand as a testimony of your witness. This is exactly what Paul did. He spoke about Jesus in the whole province of Asia, heard about him. A city that didn't know anything about Jesus was booming in the name of Jesus. He declared war on the status quo. Now, declaring war on the status quo, that's kind of a cool thing you can put on a t-shirt, much like the t-shirt I'm wearing today. And I was like, okay, what's that mean? Let's put some meat to the bones here, right? If you're gonna change the status quo, what do you need to do? And number one is this, is you need to declare there is no limit with God. You have to have that mindset. If you think that God is a small God, if you think that Jesus cannot answer prayers, if you believe the Holy Spirit is somewhat powerful, then you are putting a lid on what God can do and you will not change the status quo. You'll begin to fit in with it. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 12. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even the face cloths, or face masks, isn't that interesting? Or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick. And the disease left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is a bizarre passage in Scripture. Like, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we see this phrase, extraordinary miracles. Think about that for a second. Isn't a miracle supposed to be extraordinary in itself? Why do we have to quantify it? In fact, let's let's actually define a miracle, and then let's talk about what an extraordinary miracle is. A miracle, as defined uh, by Wayne Grudem, is a less common kind of God's activity in which God raises people's awe and wonder that bears witness to God's greatness. So when you see a miracle, it's not like, oh, just a miracle, just a miracle. Whenever you see a miracle brought on by the Spirit of God, brought on by Jesus, we are, it is meant to drop your jaw, all right? So if miracles are supposed to be jaw-dropping activity of our Lord, what in the world is an extraordinary miracle? Well, what we see in Ephesus, especially in this passage and the passages to come, is that God brought extra in Ephesus, all right? It's because it's in response to people willing to be used by God in extraordinary ways. Now, here's the deal. I've seen people use this passage and they'll start a handkerchief ministry. Sometimes we look at some of these miracles and we just, we go right for the function instead of God, what are you actually saying, all right? And so, and listen, I guess in a world today, uh, in a world where there's bitterness and sickness and sour grapes, I guess a handkerchief ministry would be a great ministry, uh, but uh, that's not exactly what what he's telling us to do here. In fact, I had a friend once in Bible college, he saw a TV preacher who had a handkerchief ministry and he decided to send me boxes of random handkerchiefs to, to, to my door. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I think it's funny. <laughs> I'm like, all right, great. So, but, but, the, but the point is this, is that the extraordinary miracle is that there was so much need in the city that even the very things that touched Paul would heal people. This is the thing. God can use you like he used, God can use you like he used Paul. And the thing is this, I believe the reason why God used handkerchiefs there is because he ran out of people that are, he ran out of people to pray. He ran out of, ran out of uh, uh, resources of reaching people. So God's like, fine, handkerchiefs. But the thing is, is God doesn't want to raise up handkerchiefs. He wants to raise up you. You to do the miraculous work of our Father Many extraordinary things were happening in Ephesus, and my prayer is, Lord, 
that you would just break in our ordinary. So we have to believe. We have to believe, indeed, uh, that God can do anything, that he can break into the extraordinary. Secondly, is uh, we break the extraordinary with prayer. If we want to change the status quo, we have to be a praying people. Let's look at verse 17, Acts chapter 19, verse 17. When this, they were casting out a bunch of demons. There was a lot of just some scary, uh, scary stuff here. Uh, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. People were seeing the miracles. They were seeing the, the, the demonic strongholds. Again, a city of the occult being broken. And they held the name of God in high esteem. Now, here's the deal. You're not going to hold the name of God in high esteem if you're not willing to praise and if you're not willing to pray. If God has no limits, if he's so powerful, how should this affect your prayer life? Now, just do an assessment of how we talk to God. Do we believe that God can do anything by how we pray? How many of us pray for things in which God really needs to show up? How many of us pray for things that are small that we could just do in ourselves, right? Sometimes we, we, we negate prayer by just praying things that we don't need God to show up and we're not even listening. We're just doing it for formality. We need God to show up in our prayer. We can talk about the extraordinary. We can long for the extraordinary. We can say that God has no limits, but this will never be activated without prayer. I mean, in fact, let's think of this. Is the, and a lot of these things aren't wrong, right? But does the Bible call the church a house of preaching? Listen, this is important. The centrality of the word of God is important. Don't, don't mishear me, but does it ever say that? No. Does it say that our church should be a house of a 501c3? Well, we are a 501c3. That's, that's good for a number of reasons. We're thankful for that, but that's not why we exist. Does the Bible say the church is a collection of dynamic programs? No. In fact, I think that that's what God is teaching the church through the pandemic, all right? Does the Bible say the church is for political activism? No. Thank the Lord, no, right? What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? The house is to be a house of prayer, right? And I'll tell you, and I'm convicted, there's times we do announcements longer than we pray. We gotta declare war on our whatever we think or how we think that we have in prayer. You see, prayer in the American mindset has become optional. And we're reaping what we're sowing. Church, we must pray. If the apostles prayed, should we then pray too? If the great church leaders of old were dependent on prayer, do you think we should pray too? Right? Yes? No? If your grandma and grandpa prayed, is that just a grandma and grandpa exercise? Should we pray as well? But here is the clincher. If Jesus prayed, what makes you think that we don't need prayer? If you want to declare that you are better than Jesus, then stop praying. Church, I'm going to be bold here, and, I'm not, and I do this in, in mercy and kindness, <laughs> but we are indeed in unprecedented times. 
I don't want to see what else has to come for the church to wake up. We have to become a people of prayer. Prayer is not optional. In fact, we have been sensing this for months, and we put it on the calendar. We're going to tell you this. this Next Sunday, we're going to start a one-week fast as a church. A fast is removing something from your life so that you can focus on prayer. So it could be a media fast. It could be a food fast, a partial food fast. We'll unpack that next Sunday, and then we'll go right into it that following week. And there's a worship night on that uh, Wednesday, on October the 14th as well during that week. We want to prepare. We want to prepare for what God is bringing his bride into. And I am so full of hope because here's the thing. When our hope is detached from the cultural context of of our issues that are around us, we will become a beacon of hope. But if we try to fit in, people won't see the hope at all. They'll just see more noise and hear more noise. And so here's the deal, church. You have next Sunday, we'll start the week of fast. A week from this Wednesday is the worship night. I want you to participate in this. If you're, if, now, there may be specific reasons why you can't, but I'm just saying if your food's an issue, then pull something else out. If there is, and listen, this is not because there's an election coming up. I don't want to make this political, okay? Uh, the election, I, I, I often forget there's even an election in this year. This year's so crazy, right? So let's not think politics here. What I'm saying is this. If there's never been a moment in your lifetime to fast and be at a prayer night, then I don't think you're ever going to fast and go to a prayer night. And for that, I feel very sorry for you. Because you're missing a blessing. Now, I realize if you can't be there in a couple weeks because there's situations, what I'm saying is we're walking into some serious stuff. And it would be a dereliction of, my do- of being a pastor if I held that inside. So church... Let's contend for the faith, and let's be his people. So I'll see you there on October the 14th. There's a good commercial for that, right? Jim Simbola puts it this way. The devil's not terribly frightened of our human efforts and credentials, but he knows his kingdom, the the enemy's kingdom, will be damaged when we begin to lift up our hearts to God. The quicker we realize that change occurs most powerfully through prayer, we will see revival in our land, and the status quo will be shaken. Another way that we shake the status quo is that we experience whole life change. Too much in our lifetime, we've been able to get away with just a little bit of Jesus there, a little bit of the Spirit there, and I only want to sprinkle Christianity where I want it and what I'm comfortable with, right? I mean, I don't know how you can read the Bible because I'm convicted with this, okay? And I'm speaking out of conviction of my own heart this morning, okay? I'm not any better than you are in this sense. Please hear me on that. But when I read scripture, I'm like, man, I don't do that. But how easy is it to say, man, I don't do that, and then don't do anything about it, right? The thing is, is we want to shake the status quo. We have to experience whole life change, you know, when I go out to a dinner for the restaurant, sometimes we get the sampler platter. Anybody get the sampler platter, right? Sampler platter, who likes the sampler platter, right? Here's the deal. 
I always think I'm gonna like the sampler platter until I get the sampler platter because I realize the things that I really want, they only have four pieces of, and when I'm done eating it, I'm left with everything else I didn't want, right? I realize why did I get the sampler platter, right? I got all the little things I could have and just do a little taste here, a little taste there, but I realize I'm not ultimately satisfied because I just wanted the quesadillas, all right? I don't want the deep fat fried squid, all right? But that's how we treat our life with Christ. We don't want to go all in with obedience. We just want the sampler platter, right? I'll give a little bit of prayer there, a little bit of spirit here, a little bit of worship here, and just a little bit of Bible. Just could you give me a little bit maybe of praise or just a little less of Bible? Because No, no, no. That's how we do it. And there's a reason why we're not satisfied often in our faith. It's because we're sampling platter in our faith and not just dumping, jumping in the deep end and saying, I'm going all in. And so the Ephesian church, they went all in. Ephesians chapter 19, verse 18 and many who become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and they burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and they found it to be worth 50,000 pieces of silver. What was happening here, people gave their life to Christ. Uh, Christ was known all throughout the province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, people's lives were changing. They were seeing miracles. And you know what? They looked, they said, what needs to change in my house? What needs to change in my life? And they saw all these magic books in their homes and they realized these things got to go. Now, what you have to realize is books in the ancient world may have been more expensive than your car. Uh, it was a luxury, right? And so what is happening in this passage are the Christians in Ephesus are saying their magic books have got to go. And instead of going on to ancient eBay and trying to recoup some of their costs, they said, you know what? Let's go back to the, you know, the lecture hall back behind there. We're having a bonfire tonight. And they burnt all their books of magic. And it was worth more than $6 million in U.S. dollars today. Would you be willing to burn millions of dollars for the Lord? That's the million-dollar question, quite literally. This is radical. When God changes you, it reprioritizes the way that you see things and, and the way that you process your thoughts. And, and it brings us to Paul's attitude that he said elsewhere, he said, I consider everything in this life junk compared to knowing Jesus. You see, the natural will not change without a supernatural intervention. The Ephesus church, they broke the glass in the status quo because God showed up. Emmanuel, we need to declare war on status quo. You ready? You ready to declare war on status quo? Right? You see, we settle for the status quo. Will we? Or will we reach out to God when he can do supernaturally for, through us? We need to declare war on our comfort and we need to contend for the things of God. You listen, when I preach or when Tom preaches or when they're doing worship, we're not here to entertain and tickle ears. We're here to bring us into an encounter into the presence of our almighty God. We see that the founding of the Ephesians church, they were willing to go for it all. They were willing to shake the status quo. We do get a picture of the Ephesians church even later now. About five to 10 years later, we get a picture of a flourishing Ephesians church, and we see this in the letter to Ephesians. Paul wrote to the Ephesians while he was in jail, and we see this, that he is so thankful for them. Uh, so they were founded, and then 10 years later, they're flourishing. And he says this in Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you, and I remember you in my prayers. So their church was flourishing. And so in, in order for them to flourish, we're gonna see they had to make space, continual space, 
for God to meet with them. Church, if we're going to break status quo, that's one thing. That can be an event, right? We can look back, oh man, that was awesome. But we want to make this continual. We want to flourish. And if we're going to flourish in the things of God, we've got to make space for the things of God in our life and in our meeting. Paul writes to the church in the book of Ephesians to encourage them and to grow and thrive as they encounter spiritual warfare and as they encounter persecution. They're making space for God. And, you know, in making space for God, I, I really want to use Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and onward as a template of even how we're going to see our services today. And so let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Again, in the letter of the flourishing church, Ephesians is flourishing, but he wants to encourage them because he realizes even when you flourish, you can get complacent and fall. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, understanding what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's break this down real quick. This is what he's saying. Church, this is what you need to know. You need to make the most of your time. Why? Because our, our tendency is to waste time. Our tendency is to fill our time with things that are bad. Maybe sometimes they're good things, but they're not the best things. They're not spiritual things. He's saying that we need to know the will of God, which means we need to be in the word of God. He says that we need to be sober-minded, which means we need to release ourselves from the strongholds, to the spirit of God, uh, the strongholds that we have in our life, whether there are addictions of drugs. In this sense, it was alcohol, but it was also sexual sin. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've, we learned the last couple of weeks, you're given the Holy Spirit at, uh, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, but we need to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that results in praise and worship. This isn't just an optional thing. We are commanded to praise and worship. We're commanded to be thankful and we're commanded to be obedient. You see, a church that is not being spirit-driven, a church that's not flourishing will waste time. They, will, they won't know their Bible, won't be hungry to know God's word. They'll be, they'll be okay with their addictions. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit will take a backseat in what they do. Praise will not be valued. Bitterness and negativity will rule the day and people will talk about people instead of with people. As a church, I want none of that. I want us to make space for the Lord to move. We want to make the most of our time in and outside this building. We want to be expected of what God can do. We want to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we want to make space for him in our everyday and even in our meetings. So let's get practical here. You'll notice at the end of our services, we, we typically ask you to respond. But I want to go before even that. How do you prepare before you even enter this building? How do you prepare? Well, number one is you're gonna have a way better way of time with us and as the church family if you begin praying for the Sunday meeting. Start praying for the Sunday meeting. Secondly, come expectant. Come expectant that God is gonna meet with you and he's gonna meet with us as a church. Third is be ready to praise. Sometimes we're just kind of getting warmed up. Like, all right, God, I'll I'll praise you. I, I'm going to raise my hand on that third song today. Oh, there I am, right? Like, just be ready to praise. That first note hits like, God, I'm going to give you praise. I'm here, not so that I like this song. I'm here because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift you high in the praises that are so due to you. That note number one, God, I'm going for it, right? We need to lean into his word. 
Leaning into his word, we realize that as we open the word together, as, as the family of God, we realize that God may be speaking to you through his word in a way that he might not ever again. You need to write that down. You need to take notes. You let God speak to you through his word. And then finally, we don't want this to all be theoretical. We want to respond. And this is what our ministry time is at the end, as I mentioned. During our ministry time, two things are going to happen. Number one, and some of you could probably have already filled these in in your notes without me even telling you. So number one, I'm always going to give the gospel. I want there to be a time for people that don't know Christ to respond to Jesus. And week in, week out, it's the exception when people don't accept Christ, when don't place their faith and trust in Jesus, than, um, than when they do. And so I want you to know this. Your invite matters. Your conversations with others about Jesus matters because you know when people are gonna show up here, they're going to hear the gospel. And it's my expectation that people are going to get born again. If that ever stops, we have to soul search and say, why? Okay? So the gospel is gonna be given. Secondly, we, during our ministry time, our response time, we're gonna make space for the spirit, the spirit I just went southern there, spirit, spirit to, re, uh, to meet with you. We're gonna make space for you to receive prayer or for you to pray with somebody. And so at the end of the message, I may, uh, God may have laid something on my heart during the message or our time here, uh, or maybe one of you uh, shared something, or maybe there was just practical applications already on the screen. And this is your time to respond, all right? And so what we do, practically speaking, is that we just open up this space for you to receive prayer. But oftentimes we never get here or oftentimes we don't even respond in our seats because there's things, there's a war going on in our heart. So here's some practical ways for you to respond uh, in that moment. Is number one is that you need to give up control. You need to give control to God. You need to give up your personal control and say, God, I'm yours in this moment. Then you need to ask him. You need to ask questions. God, what are you doing? God, help me see what you're doing today. God, is that me? Or maybe you're just in a spot where you're just praying to him and saying, God, I just, I need you to meet with me today. God, I need you to speak to me. Give me clarity in this today. Go on the forefront and ask God. You can begin to ask God even when you're coming into this building. And after you ask God, then you wait. You wait, you wait, and you wait again. And this is hard because I don't like waiting. I don't know anybody who does. But as we ask God, we have to wait. And so sometimes you may be here and you may be talking to God. Sometimes you may be coming up here for prayer. And, you know, you feel like nothing's happening. Just wait. Sometimes when we pray to God, we do all the talking. But in a relationship, the person that does all the talking, that's considered rude, right? We need to do listening, a lot more listening. And then finally, we need to respond. If you hear something that's applicable to you or you're sensing the Spirit wants you to respond or, or even you are just longing to hear from God, anywhere in between, Respond. I can't tell you the thing that burdens my heart more than anything is when people know things of what they ought to do and they don't do it. And I'm just as guilty with that. Response is hard. Now, a practical way that we ask you to respond is to come up front. But I do realize that there's nothing magical about this, okay? There's nothing magical. It's just practical. It's practical. When you, when you respond and come forward, we are gonna have people pray with you. All right? It's just practical. And in this day and age, socially distanced, right? But I realize that God can meet with you in the chairs. I get that. But the thing is, is that 
there's a blessing when someone's able to pray over you. We really believe that. So respond. And when we respond, the church grows in faith. You grow in faith. Here's the deal. What happens if like, you don't have anything to respond with that day? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, guess what? You have bold access to the throne room of God, which means if you're not receiving, you're gonna be giving prayer. Here's what I'm saying. The things just don't happen on the platform. They happen on the floor. God doesn't want our church to be spectators. He wants us to be contributors to each other, to build each other up in the kingdom of God. You know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that my three-year-old son went from the crib to his big boy bed, all right? His big boy bed. Um, and the thing is, is his big boy bed is just really the crib, right? But for whatever reason, he thought, he, it, we, we pulled the wall down, in his mind, he still saw the wall there. And so whenever he needed something, going to the bathroom, wanting to get up in the morning or, or whatever, he would yell for us, and we didn't hear it, he'd begin to cry, Mom, Dad, help him! Like, you, you can get out of bed! Well, you know what happened? This week, it clicked. We started hearing the pitter-patter in the middle of the night. I'm like, what is that? I thought our house was getting broken into. But then I turned and I saw his smiling face. He realized, he's free! He's free! I've been freed! I'm like, you have been freed! It took you this long? In fact, let me, I, 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 I wanna just show you what this looks like, all right? So do we have that back there? There it is. I brought the front of his crib, all right? This is the front of his crib. This was missing but this is what he still saw, right? But you know what? Spiritually speaking, you know where I'm going with this. A lot of us are like this. God's speaking, but we think this is still here, that we don't have bold access, or we don't think that he can move in our life, or that we don't think that he can intervene. We see this, and what God wants you to know is, this is gone. This is gone. We can step out in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. He wants to meet you where you're at, and he wants to wow you with who he is. To be a spirit-driven church, we have to respond, we have to make space, and we're gonna make space right now. But I wanna do that in reading you one more passage. In the book of Ephesians, or in the, in the Bible, we see the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible. 30 years later, Jesus had a warning to the church that was so spirit-driven. I imagine by this time, the Ephesians church was like, they were well-known. They would have conferences. They probably put out a few you know, worship albums, right? They were impressive. And this is what Jesus saw, Revelation chapter two, verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider, for you have fallen Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What we're seeing here, we saw their founding, we saw their flourishing, but what we're seeing here is their fall. Why? They were doing everything else in the name of Jesus, but they lost their first love. If we don't want to fall, we need to stay in love. Well, you hear that phrase, if you've been in the church world a while, you know, you know, stay with your first love, right? Make sure your first love is awesome. But how do you know your, your love for the Lord has grown cold? I'm gonna make this just, this is just something I want you to just run through your mind right now. 
When Jesus told the church in Ephesus some 60 years after Pentecost that you've lost your first love, I'm imagining perhaps it's because of this. They went hours without thinking or talking about God. They didn't hunger after the word of God or spending time with him. They lost their generosity. They would rather sing the anthems of culture than be wowed and enveloped in the worship of praise. They were more concerned with the physical world than the spiritual world. They did things for people and to be seen instead of God. Their sin didn't grieve their heart. And when they encountered the word of God, they didn't respond. They lost their first love. And what I believe that God is going to do right now in our remaining moments that we have is we need to respond. For some of us, we've lost our first love. And God's calling us back in his mercy and his love to equip us for the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. When the world says it's doom and gloom, there's rising hope when we're connected to Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Again, if you'd like more information on Emmanuel, check us out online at kenosha.church. Also, we'd love it if you connected with us on Facebook and Instagram, both at kenosha.church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes at Emmanuel Kenosha. That way you never have to miss an episode and it helps us out greatly. At Emmanuel, we are not a perfect people, but a people being made new. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next time on the Emmanuel Message Podcast.